Welcome everybody back to another fun edition of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. And a gentleman that I have on today, I mean, we just dated it back to 2017, which seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only six years ago. My dear friend, Rory Glasgow of Brown Foreman, you know, you were one of the first guys I met at Whiskey Fest, man, like back in 2017. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hey, Gavin. No, thanks for having me on. I know it's it's been quite a ride, to your words. Yeah, it seems like a world away now that goes back to 2017. We're at Whiskey Fest. Probably we're trying to triangulate it back to maybe San Francisco, which is probably right because yeah. that's that's kind of where I was operating out of, and uh, obviously now in a different role, kind of being covering the whole well, US. And, and, and then there was also stuff. Yeah, there was also stuff like in that same year. There were a couple of LA events. Yeah, I mean, if I remember correctly, back it was the. It was really the Ben Riek, like the ca- they were heavier cast strength ones when you first started. Yeah, we had, oh my gosh, I remember going to those whiskey festivals and we would just bring bags and bags of whiskey, boxes upon boxes, because back then that's when, you know, before the rebranding in 2020, especially for, for Ben Riek, gosh, we just had so many different expressions. Uh, so that table, that little booth that we had was just full chocolate block with all the bumps oh, yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. And you and you and Stuart would just be like dividing it down the middle as they were coming at you because you back then, I mean, they're I mean, whopping back then, 2017, you know, you think like I'm talking about the nineteen forties. You know, <laughs> not many people were like when it came to Scotch, there wasn't a lot of like higher A B V stuff. And you guys had the higher A B V stuff back then. But- yeah, we. I mean, we have always kind of released a bunch of single casks, especially from Ben Rieg, but we had some cask strength stuff as well. We kind of, back in those days, we used to really have it kind of black and white between peated and unpeated stuff. Yeah, so whether right. it was Stuart or myself, one of us would be on the peated side, one of us would be on the unpeated side, and we would just be kind of, yeah, divide and conquer, really. And back then, I mean... <laughs> The whiskey festivals were just, everybody was was lighting up to get, you know, certainly it's still the same today, but back then, I think we were kind of under the radar. We still kind of are in some ways, but back then people were just like, look how many whiskeys those guys have got. And they just wanted yeah. to learn about them. Yeah, different casks, you name it. We had it, peated, unpeated, double distilled. I mean, I've still got some of those old videos. I mean, I, I've documented everything since 2015. I mean, yeah. I'm sure I can go dig up a few, you know, lens you know later on this week and put it up on rolex whiskey because honestly like we we, you know not that we ever stopped drinking cool whiskey but we were drinking some pretty i thought you guys were just a little bit out there in front with as far as like you know like hey we're not gonna just gonna show up and be like the three three core items and good luck and have a great Mm -hmm. night and keep moving you were like no we can keep you here for like 45 minutes Oh, 100%. Yeah, we would keep people there. Yeah, we once you came over to our booth, whether it was me or Stuart or both of us, it was just incredible. We were able to just have people stand because, again, it was like, one, especially Ben Riek, and we'll get into Glen Glassa as well as we go on, yeah. but especially Ben Riek, I mean, once you crack that nut, you're like, wow, wait, this isn't just a space like distillery. This is so much more here. And then, of course, we had Glendronic at the table as well. Yeah. So that had all of the, the age ranges that go along with the core range and then some special single cask stuff that go back to the 90s, that really highly coveted single cask range. And then we had, even back then, we had peated Glendronic, which I think people maybe didn't really appreciate at the time, but I've gone back now into some of the archive stuff and like that stuff was just fantastic. And then we had Glenglassa, which was just kind of always off to the side. And we had three expressions in our core back then. They were non-age statements. They were actually high ABV back then, still are today, but people always kind of go, oh, what, what was that? And then it was always kind of the focus was on 
I'd say primarily Glendronic because people knew it and they were coming well, from. Well, it was, it was kind of like, you know, prior to the, that Yamazaki sherry cask, you know, putting Suntory on the map, Glendronic was the sherry bone. That 18 was, and it still is. I tell people, you like sherry, that's what you drink. Because it's still affordable. It's still just, value proposition aside, it's a flavor. It's a cherry flavor bomb that you're just like, whoa, this sherry is just like out of control. It's old school. I mean, that's, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like it's, I think it's harder and harder to find those styles of whiskeys now, unless you're paying uh, just an absorbent amount of a premium there on a whiskey that, you could easily get from something that's, in my opinion, better, but that's not because I work for them, because I do genuinely love the Glendronic. And in many ways, that was my gateway into single malt, was back working in a pub in Edinburgh, where... Well, that, that's why I, that's why I want to... Let's go there, because I like to yeah. start the journey. Tell me the yeah. whiskey journey. Like, when was it, like, for you growing up across the pond, what, mm-hmm. like, obviously in the land of whiskey, you know, <laughs> what was, what were your first whiskey experiences? Was it just like, all of us normally like young dumb having fun hey whiskey or you know like was that like layer one or did you appreciate from day one it's it's funny i think there is a lot of similarities i've i always love hearing people's whiskey's journeys because i think there's there is so many so much commonality there that you find from me being in scotland growing up to someone that's in the u.s there is very much that perception that whiskey scotch whiskey blended scotch whiskey particularly Nobody was really drinking single malts when I was growing up. It was all about kind of, if it was, it was blended. And back then, blended, it'd be, you probably saw them when you were in Scotland recently, the big upside down balls where the labels are actually upside down because the bottles are upside down. It's like a liter bottle and it's got an optic. And usually it's it's an older chap drinking it and he's drinking it with a half pint of beer. And it's not the most exciting thing in the world. So for me, it was kind of like, well, you know, there's more exciting things when you turn 18 to start trying rather than blended scotch whiskey. And single malt just wasn't on anyone's radar, particularly back then. And when I was 19, so I went to university after graduating high school. Oh my gosh, that's an American term. I can't believe I said graduating high school. No one graduates high school in, in the UK. You just do high school. Well, look at me. Well, it's, um, you know, it's like, for me, I grew up in South Africa. You matriculate and that's it. Oh, that's matriculate and like. Yeah, you know, and you're done. But like we also, it was all blended back then. There was no single malts. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the Johnny Walkers, the J&Bs, the Shivers, the Bell. Yeah. That's what yep. you saw. That's what you saw. A famous grouse. That's what, it's, that was the, yeah. the house drink for most bars. That was their, their home whiskey. And that's all they had, really. Yeah, for me, I mean, so when I was at uni, I was basically looking up getting a wee part-time job. And I remember handing my CVs out, my resumes, just going down the high street. Ended up getting all the way down into an area called Morningside, which is kind of on the outskirts. It's still in the city centre, but I wouldn't say it's the city centre in Edinburgh. It's a lovely little kind of more affluent little neighbourhood there. Lovely old churches, um, little kind of residential area, but it has a lovely main street. And on that main street was a pub called The Canny Man's. And that was a pub I worked at, would go on to work for about six and a half years or so, starting as a bartender. Back then, we called them waistcoats because that's what you wore. It was a very institutional, <laughs> old school, family owned since the 1870s pub. Still in the family hands. It is run, and I mean this in the most polite way possible, but, but with an iron fist. It was very much run this way, and that was the only way it was going to be run. So we had the waistcoats, and then we had the suits who were the managers. And I eventually graduated to being a suit, um, although I still always wore a waistcoat. But for me, I didn't understand single malt. We had about 500 different single malts at this pub and we had some just crazy wow. old archived bottles there. 
And when it was quiet behind the pub, I just picked up bottles and started, if they're open, I'd pick them up and I would just start smelling them, smelling the cork, smelling the liquid inside. I was very fortunate that also at the pub, a lot of the regulars that came in happened to be people that actually worked in the industry. And so as I'm you know, getting to understand like oh, smoky versus sweet versus fruity versus more cask dominated, what does the age mean? What does the ABV mean? All these questions are starting to naturally kind of percolate in the mind while I'm just kind of figuring out how to manage a bar. And then also having, so the, I say the biggest influence really for me was a chap named Raymond Davidson, who you may know, Gavin, I'm not sure. I may have run into maybe one of his sons at a whiskey festival, but Raymond Davidson invented the Glencairn glass. It's his company, Glencairn oh, wow. glass. That. Yeah. And I had no clue that this was who he was. He's such a lovely, humble man that um, I'm talking to him about whiskey and serendipitously, his favorite whiskey at that time when I was working in the pub that we had in our back bar was Glendronach 15. And he knew back then that it was uh, going to be discontinued. And so he actually got the last bottle that we had that was full in the back of our bar and he had us Tipex on it for Raymond only. And so I was like, all right, okay, that's kind of strange. But, and then obviously we couldn't get it back in again and he let me try a dram and I was like, well, that's that kind of light bulb moment. I was like, that's really good. Because um, the first time I'd ever tried single malt, it was a Laphroaig 10. And you know how that goes. <laughs> like 18, 19, you're like, just a big red X. So that is drain their socks in the water. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. I described it as burning rubber tires was the first uh, thing that's <laughs> back of my mouth. Which, again, sometimes we use these descriptors and it's like, everyone's like, yeah, that's exactly why I wanted my glass. Um, and now I can appreciate that. But back then, I didn't have a clue. And so that was, sherried whiskey was my kind of, my, my entryway into single malt. And it was Raymond that really helped me appreciate single malt. And it would be funny because I remember I would, I'd go over to the US before I moved over here, probably back in 2015, 2016. Oh, it's probably 2015 actually. Went to Woodford Reserve, which I'm ashamed to say was the first distillery I'd ever gone to. Hadn't even gone to a Scottish distillery. And I remember being oh. in a gift shop at Woodford and seeing a Glencairn glass. And I remember telling Raymond when I got back, to Scotland, I was like, "Oh, I saw your glass in the the whiskey in the gift shop in Woodford. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it?" He's like, and obviously, I, later I would discover that he's very wealthy, and they're all over the world. So, <laughs> so very lovely man. But he he got me into single malts, and he kind of put me on the path for appreciating it. And obviously, but you're basically, I mean, from what you're saying, is you're working like you know in the candy shop. There's like 500 different ones of them, and you're the suit. Yeah, so in the well, there's the the candy mans. The candy mans is a, a term candy. No, no, no. I, I'm making a joke. Like you're in the oh. candy store. Like you have you have like this this place that you had just literally got so much single malt. And you're like, well, I'm gonna keep like. I mean, I like that one. What else we got? I'm dipping my hand in the candy jar exactly, and I'm just like, <laughs> that's exactly it. And then you just you know, and same as what most people find, they find that one. And this is always the advice I give people, and they're like, I don't like whiskey. I'll never like whiskey. I've tried it. I'm like. You've just got to keep trying it because you will find yep. that one. And once you have that light bulb moment, it's just, it, you start to go along that vein and soon you start to find the whiskeys that are similar to the first one you tried that had that light bulb moment. Then you start to open up that whole spectrum of possibilities. And it's so exciting. I love seeing people have that journey. That's why I got into this role because being a bartender and then a bar manager, like so we'd have so many tourists coming into Edinburgh for the arts festivals, the fringe festivals that would happen every year. Or even just people that were Scottish. That, because that's the thing. Even in Scotland, my friends that I've grown up with that are still back in Scotland, they, a lot of them don't like whiskey. 
or I've never really tried it, or it's just something they know. Well, that was that was my thing at Glen Eagles because I'm like, yeah. hey, how come no one? They're like, people don't really drink whiskey here. Exactly. Like, they get the beer, they get wine, they do champagne. Uh-huh. All the aperitifs were like champagne driven. I'm like, wait, what? Uh-huh. Like, yeah, no, like it's just up there because we're in Scotland. Exactly. It's the same. Like, uh, I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. So for me, I was lucky. Right place, right time. Single malls were taken off, and I just happened to have the kind of right. I guess kind of, yeah, guidance from from people as well. We had Charles McLean come in as well and his tweet suit and his monocle and he's such a character and he just, you can just listen to him all day talk and that was really, I guess, him and, and some other authors and we had some distillers come in as well that were, um, I was very lucky just to kind of be there at that time when single malt started taking off and then coming over to America in 2017, I was in for a treat because I didn't even know anything about bourbon. We had, I think, an a, old bottle but did you come did you come over here to that that was your first foray like working for a brand yeah yeah wow it was so i had <laughs> okay. i graduated i did my master's in marketing back in scotland graduated and then came over yeah that was i, I knew i wanted to go into single malts really from a marketing although marketing is kind of seen as a dirty word i think when, we, when you know both sides like marketing brand, i want brand awareness started brand awareness but also <laughs> right which is that you are paying homage to the production and the history while also being able to promote it in a sensible and yeah really kind of thoughtful way because you can see how marketing can be done so well mm-hmm. and you can see how it does you know maybe the opposite effect if you're in the know oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's really <laughs> what that's that's that we, get, we can talk about that but i don't like to say anything you know i sometimes no 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 what's the actual bottle when the box is so pretty like exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, do you know what? <laughs> Talking about prey balls, but uh, with excellent whiskey inside. Should we have a wee dram? Yeah. Our- yeah. Let's let's talk. Tell me what's going on. Like, okay, do me a favor. Give everybody just a brief history on the three brands. Even though I know you know with Brenneria, Tronic, yeah, Glenglasso. Just give a little history of how it falls under the house, and you know, well, a tip. Absolutely. A wee tidbit. So. Back in 2016, Brown Foreman acquired three distilleries. Now, Brown Foreman is an American corporation that owns Jack Daniels, Woodford Reserve, Old Forester, so very much among other things, but mostly an American whiskey company. And the three single malt distilleries, one being kind of more prominent than the other, Glendronic Single Malt Distillery in the northeast of Scotland and Aberdeenshire. We have Ben Reek, which is kind of somewhat under the radar at this point in 2016, was a, it's a space-side distillery, although very unconventional. And we have Glenglassa, which is a coastal single malt distillery, which kind of straddles the space-side and eastern highland border. And it's about a four-minute walk from a lovely beach called Sandin Bay. So starting with Glendronach, certainly this is, you know, we've already touched upon it already, but Glendronach is your quintessential old-school highland sherried single malt scotch whiskey distillery. It does dabble in other things, but really at its heart and soul, um, almost all of it is exclusively matured in first and second fill, Oloroso and Pedro Jimenez sherry casks. We do a port cask as well, um, which is initially matured in sherry and then moved to port casks. But that's really, it's a big, bold, classic Highland matured in sherry casks. So it's just lovely, unctuous, and, full body. And, and in big, bold sherry casks. And in big, you, bold sherry casks, yeah. You know, those sherry casks just give off so much flavor that a real that sherry just is it, it pushes through and not many people have been able to do that i mean there's a lot of people that say that they have a sherry whiskey you know that's real easy to say 
hey, cool, we got that. But like those Landronics are like deep, deep, deep sherry, yeah. deep color, deep flavor. You just like, it, and for a Scotch person to be like, wait, that tastes like sherry. I mean, I bring mm-hmm. so many people into the category to try Scotch whiskey by a Glendronic because they're like, I wasn't expecting that. Exactly. I think that's the thing. Pour, it, sherry casks, uh, if you're doing it the traditional way, you'll use either what's called a punchin or a butt, which are larger casks, um, if you're not aware. So usually bourbon is aged in a barrel, which is about 200 liters. A sherry punchin or butt traditionally it's going to be about 500 to 550 liters they are massive so when distilleries are using sherry casks the larger the cask what you're going to do in that essentially is retain a lot more of the spirit profile but glendronic has this uncanny ability to not only retain the balance from the distillery profile which is very much this kind of orange blackberry cherry sandalwood tobacco note coming from the spirit but it also balances out with that incredibly rich note of the sherry casks which work in tandem with the distillery profile so from the casks you're going to get baking spice dark chocolate and some arabica coffee mixed in with fudge and walnuts and all these lovely things so they're working in synergy with the distillery profile with the orange the blackberry the cherry the tobacco the sandalwood so it's almost by design when you look at glendronic's history going back to 1826 when it was established our first receipt of exclusively ordering sherry casks go back to 1848, I think it was, wow. in the 1840s. So we have a receipt that says, which I'm, we're not really sure exactly what the, the verbiage means on it, but it means we were, basically they were ordering sherry casks, fine sherry casks, port casks, and fine port casks. So that's that's the receipt we had. So at least we know that almost, I mean, Glendronach just hasn't changed. It really, at the heart and soul of its spirit profile, it's by design supposed to work with sherry because that's what they were doing since the 1840s, at least. So if you like that style of whiskey, it's harder and harder to find that. It really does just, it's a true testament to that style of whiskey. Let's see, let's move on to, to Ben Riek. Um, I'll give you the clear yeah. synopsis. <laughs> My, that's what I do. So Ben Riek is going to be our space side. And when you think of space side, I think most people, that's for many people, I think, the gateway into their single malt journey. Either sherried Highland or sherried Speyside or just kind of your classic Speyside. So Glenlivet, Glenfiddich, that kind of gateway stuff there. But classically, we think of Speyside as being very frugal on the peat, so not a lot of smoke, if any. Maybe just a whisper. Apples, pears, vanilla, honey. And those are kind of what I think of as the classic Speyside. Although there's about 50 distilleries in that region, it's very difficult to kind of broad brush it. Benriac, on one side of the coin does that style of whiskey apples pears vanilla honey very well you see that in like our original tin but even on that original tin if you've ever tried it or seen it on the front of the bottle it will tell you just a little maybe a little kind of hint or a little teaser as what ben Riek also does so there's a smoke level on that label and it says trace so it gives us we're actually putting a trace amount of peated whiskey socks into that kind of marriage of casks that we're using bourbon sherry virgin and out of those 100 casks let's say a small handful of them are peated so Benriek also does heavily peated Speyside single malt scotch whiskey. So we actually have the ability to make both styles. And then not only that, we're actually marrying those styles together in some of our core ranges. So it's not going to be, if it is like a Smoky 10 or a Smoky 12, which by the name you would suggest is Smoky, but actually out of those casks, we're entwining and interweaving in there some peated and some unpeated whiskey. So when it is more dominantly Smoky, you're not just getting that very linear smoke note hit over and over again it's actually woven in amongst marsala casks rum casks bourbon virgin oak casks so you're getting a lot more of this kind of balanced smoke and 
because it's a Speyside distillery, the smoke is also different. So you're using Highland peat, which gives you a, a softer, more wood-based barbecue, almost sweet smoke, as opposed to the more medicinal Isla smoke that you find from many of those big coastal Isla distilleries. So it's a very different style of smoke. And of course, because it's Speyside and because it's been Riak, you get much more of this fruit driving through every whiskey, every expression that we release. It's it's hard to almost kind of, if Glendronach is just sherry and Highland, so much more than that, but just to kind of give it two or three words, Ben Riak is actually quite difficult to kind of put it in a nutshell because it does so many different things. And on top of doing double distilled spirit, we also do triple distilled spirit in the summer months. So you go into our warehouses in Ben Riak and Speyside and you will see every whiskey imaginable, double distilled, triple distilled, heavily peated, unpeated, and then I think we've got about 25 different styles of casks. So that ranges from red wine to Pedro Jimenez to Oloroso, Marsala, Madeira, rum casks. It's incredible. And in those casks can be unpeated or peated or triple distilled. It's and how long has Ben Riak been around for? When did Ben Riak get started? 1898. So really at wow. the worst possible time you could sell a distillery in Scotland. In the year 1900, there was a big financial collapse in the industry. So Ben Riak was actually closed two years after opening and then it wouldn't reopen until 1965, but it was only ever included in blended Scotch whiskies. So it was still producing single malt, but that single malt was going into blends. So we've got, it almost got dubbed as the whisper and the blend for that reason until 1994 when they released their first single malt to the consumer market. And that was a 10 year old, hence why we have our original 10 these days, because it pays homage to that original, original 10 back in the 90s. It's been around. It's just, uh, I think people are now starting to kind of... So wild. Surface. It is wild. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, and we'll use that term, you know, loosely, however you want to say, like marketing, but it's definitely more on the map, more and more and more and more and more. And that's definitely. all the hard work that, that you and the team are doing to get it out mm-hmm. there because it's definitely becoming a contender. I mean, you're seeing it out there, which means distributors are picking it up, which means it sells. Exactly. And that's the thing as well. I mean, it's it, it, people that love whiskey and there's always that kind of little kind of niggle in the back of their mind it's like oh no is there a big company coming in and they are they going to kind of tear apart the things we love about this this distillery and kind of more tangentially a brand but i think with brown foreman we've been lucky as three distilleries that we were taken as far as we could under the previous leadership of billy walker and now with the kind of distribution arm globally with Brown Foreman, which of course, you know, distributes Jack Daniels and yeah. Woodford Reserve and Old Forster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For us, it's just like, we're just plugging in and playing. And that's just what we've been needing to do for years now. So we're, we're starting to see the fruits of that labor working with Brown Foreman. And it, the whiskey will always change naturally because it's an organic product. And with Rachel Barry at the helm, we've seen her kind of get her fingerprints all over the whiskey, but it's never been so consistent, actually. It's been the amazing thing because... Uh, I remember being in Phoenix, Arizona just uh, a few months ago and there's this chap here who's a keeper of the quake. He works at a lovely hotel. He was just saying under the the new leadership, well not new, since 2016, with Rachel Barry as our master blender for all three distilleries. We've now seen these distilleries, I think especially in Ben Riek's case, have the consistency that we've all needed because whiskeys that are, you know, year to year, even if it has the same packaging, same label, same age statement, same ABV, they can still taste very inconsistent from one batch to the next. And that's fun, but it's not really good in terms of, you know, if you want to keep buying these products, you at least expect a similar flavor profile. And that's where a master blender comes into play, like Rachel Barry 
creating consistency across these lines. And she's done a fantastic job of doing that. Fantastic job. And the pride, I think like that's the other level. Like I, I honestly, you know, as watching her in action and seeing how she talks, I mean, there's love. Oh yeah. There's oh, yeah. real love for everything that she's doing. Like, wow. These are her babies, kind of. I mean, that's the yeah. way that Stuart, me, uh, Rachel, anyone that has this kind of... Because uh, to represent three distilleries, it's so nice to see how they've grown up, even since 2016, with, with Rachel coming on board, with Brown Foreman providing the support that they provide, and just growing a team here. It's like seeing kind of, obviously, Ben Rhea going through the rebranding of 2020, and we're seeing Glenn Glassa now have that moment as well. There is love for these distilleries. And if you ever get a chance to go to these these locations, Benria, Glendronic, Glenglassa, they're not massive scale operations. They're still very, and we don't call ourselves bespoke or niche. We're very traditional in the scale and especially Glenglassa, which we need to get onto. We've got to talk about Glenglassa. Yes, let's I'm go. Let's talk. here swirling my glass. But no. All right. Which, what do you have in your glass? I've got the sand end in front of me. Okay. Let's talk about so is, let's talk about Glen Glasso for a second, and then let's. I'm, I'm I've just poured some of mine in, and I'm smelling it right now. You you knows this. I'll tell you a wee bit about Glen Glasso. So, this is the distillery that we just haven't paid much mind to. And kind of going back to the whiskey festivals that we initially spoke about, it was like, well, look how many Ben Riegs there are, and like, oh wow, I love Glendronach. And look, they've got a single cast from 1990 something. That's amazing. And then there's always King Glen Glasso, just kind of in the middle, sandwiched between these two behemoth distilleries that. If you didn't, if you're kind of looking on the surface, you'd be like, "Well, what's this distillery? There's no age on it, and the kind of the bottles were a little bit dated, and it needed a, a refresh." And what was it all about? And so, if you knew anything about Glenglassa, you knew how special it was. And honestly, this is many ways I view Glenglassa as the sleeping giant in the Brown Foreman kind of single malt portfolio. It really is, and hopefully, you're picking this up on the nose in this whiskey because Glenglassa is something so special. When you look back in time. Glenglassa has been a distillery that has had many ups and downs. It kind of very much is affected by the trends. So if there's any sort of slumping in the market or a boom in the market, Glenglassa has always kind of kept up with that, but always has suffered a little bit. But going back to 1875, when Glenglassa was established, it was actually very well written about. I don't know if you've got a book by Alfred Bernard, but it's a brilliant book called The Whiskey Distilleries of the United Kingdom. And he basically in the 1880s went around distilleries and wrote about them. And he would go in horse and cart, talk to the mashman and his wife and his children. And he would talk, he'd get this amazing picture painted from his little almost journal writings. And from some of the biggest distilleries in Scotland, you would think that, you know, the big household names would get big two, three page spreads. But in many cases, they've got maybe a page, maybe a page and a half. Glenglassa gets two pages full of a distillery that most people haven't heard of. And he was obsessed with it. He loved it. And at the time in the 1880s, Glenglassa was booming. The single malt was highly rated and people were trying to get as much of it as possible. So they were doing exceptionally well. And then 1907 rolls around. I mentioned before that in 1900, Benriac was closed because of a big downturn in the market. About a third of distilleries closed and Glenglassa was swept up in that in 1907. And then from 1907, after it being mothballed, it was actually a bakery. It was transformed for a short time in World War II uh, as a bakery to provide bread. Because obviously if you can make, if you can mill grain and make beer, you can basically make bread. So they transformed into a bakery in the Second World War. They actually housed troops there because where it is located, it's a perfect amphibious landing for you know who in world war ii 
So I uh, actually had, yeah, they actually had some lovely tank traps that are still there. To, you can go visit them today. Lovely bunkers that are there built into the little beach heads. And so we're about a four minute walk to the beach. And so there was troops house there in World War II. And then going into the 1960s, we refurbished in the 1958, 59, and then we reopened in 1960. And Glenglassa has not changed since that refurb in 1958. All of the equipment that is in there goes back to old Porteous made machinery, which if you know anything about Scotland and if you've been to distilleries, it's kind of like yeah, the punchline of the joke. <laughs> yeah. Punchline of many jokes in Scotland for Porteous is that this is a company that was so good and so well made their products that they basically drove themselves out of business because they made old mills, mash tons, motors. And once you had a mill from Porteous, you never needed another one. So they basically drove themselves. Oh, I mean, you know, you go to Porteous Zuri, they still have them all there sitting there. And they still have them. Like, you know, this is 80 years old. This is this many years old. And they still use it. And there's one guy in the UK that goes around and maintains them all, which is crazy. He's he's like a four foot something Welshman. It's hilarious. I've never met him, but I've heard stories about him. Whether or not he exists, I'm sure. That's my question. Like, what about the parts? And like, can you afford this thing to be down? Yeah, like, uh. Well, I've heard that the the one guy that maintains them all, he actually has the patents to from the molds to make all the parts. Yeah. So that guy is that guy's very smart. So he knew what he was doing. Almost as, so almost as wealthy as the Glen Cairn guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So fast forwarding to the eighties, Glen Glasser closes in nineteen eighty six, and then we go through a big period of mothballing for about two and a half decades. We reopen in two thousand and eight. And so what you have there in your glass is a product of the distillery being reopened and rebirthed in 2008. And we just rebranded, got new packaging, a new core range. And the one you have in your hand called Sand End, which is the name of the beach that we sit upon, that is going to be the most, I guess, quintessential Glenglassa distillery profile expression that we have. You're going to get a taste for what Glenglassa is like. So I'm curious in your thoughts on this. Oh, okay. So viscosity is beautiful. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just rubbing it around my whole mouth. Like, I love the ABV at 50.5. I could have taken one extra swirl just to take the bite just for a second off. Mm-hmm. But this is like, I don't know. I mean, not to compare it to Ben Rhea, but like I'm getting those honey notes. I'm getting a lot of crispiness, mm-hmm. yet a lot more oil. Yeah. Super like, oily. Super oily and... It's like all over my tongue still, and it, it it just keeps going, to be honest. And I yeah. kind of like the ABV. It's just a nice little warm tickle down the back, but it's it's almost not obviously as thick as honey, but it feels like that when it's in your mouth. I describe Glenglassa as almost, and it's not syrupy in any way, but it is got that yeah. viscosity where it's bordering on the kind of that syrupy viscosity where... And if I said to you that this is... You, you, you already mentioned it, 50.5%, 101 proof... It's light in color. It's non-age statement. So we don't know what's going in there in terms of age. Obviously, being from 2008, reopening, we can only use a certain kind of window of age statements. But this has no right to be at this level of ABV, at this proof, at that color, um, with non-age statement on the label, to be as smooth and as round as it is. So let me give you a wee under, let me give you a little insight into what's going on here in the cask profile. So this is unusually using three casks: uh, bourbon, sherry, and um, we're also going to be using Manzanilla sherry casks in this. Oh, interesting. That's okay. That makes sense. 
So Manzanilla is a coastal sherry from Spain. It's actually kind of, if you know anything about sherry, you get oxidative and biologically aged sherries. Oxidative is where you're kind of allowing that sherry to breathe with the, the oxygen. So you get a more richer, deeper flavor. So Pedro Jimenez Oloroso. Biologically aged sherries like Manzanilla, they don't take on the oxygen, so they don't oxidize. So they keep this, and you nailed it with there with the crispness, that crispiness. So that's from mm-hmm. that Manzanilla cask where it gives you that acidity. And what I find with this whiskey is the acidity from that and the coastal nature of that sherry will drive up the coastal proximity of this distillery to the North Sea, drives up that lovely bit of salinity that you find from the North Sea air getting into the casks. And then the acidity as well drives out this unusual tropical fruit note. And for me, Glenglassa, in a nutshell, from the stills, we're getting flavors that are pineapple, uh, grapefruit, uh, papaya, and mango. Those are the main flavors that we find coming off the still. And so this acidity from that manzanilla cask just drives out that citrus, but particularly not lemon or even lime, which you see with most distilleries in Scotland at this age. But mostly you're getting that tropical fruit note, that pineapple acidity. And it's just one. Pineapple is, real, is spot on. And, and that would be that crispy juiciness. But then it's mm. got this just like that thick viscosity of the honey. That's like, just like, oh, well, like to me, it's like, it's just, I wasn't expecting that much oiliness. And I love that. Yeah. And I think, th- you know, there's no hiding in this that, again, the light color suggests that it's not taking on a massive amount of cask profile. And these are naturally colored mm-hmm. whiskeys. And the high ABV, there's nowhere to hide there. Um, you know, when you see a lot of non-age statements in Scotland, sadly, sometimes it can be just something they're just, you know, trying to get out the door. But in this case, you we don't we're not dropping it down to 43 or even 40%, heavens forbid. Um, we're not adding caramel colorings to kind of give the illusion of something maybe slightly darker and heavier and richer. We're just presenting it as is high ABV and the distillery does the talking. And the whole concept of age just goes out the window when you're thinking about this. And I think what you're looking for now is, well, what is this whiskey trying to tell me? And then what this whiskey is trying to tell you is, this is Glenglassa. This is a coastal malt that has this unusual viscosity and tropical fruit note associated with it. And that's why going back to the the 70s and the 80s, Glenglassa did struggle and suffer because blenders at that time, they were not looking for a viscous, oily, tropical fruit-driven single malt. They wanted something not more akin to Ben Riek. They wanted... Um, apples, pears, kind of medium-bodied lemon citrus. That was it. And that's why we'd go into yeah. the blends. And it's so good. <laughs> Amazing. It's so good. All right, tell me oh. about Port Soy. What's it? Uh, well, let's, let's go to the 12 before we actually... Okay. Actually, it's funny. Port Soy is going to be our, our smoky one. So we're going to leave that to okay. the end. So this is our, our second. This is actually going to be our flagship, believe it or not. This is going to be the one that's going to be most... Um, kind of uh, approachable in price if you like um, even though it's the only one that has an age statement so this is going to be our 12 year and this is our first age statement that we've had since 1986 since the distillery closed so back then when we mothballed in the 80s through the 90s and the 2000s before Glenglassa reopened we just periodically would release single casks to private private bottlers and that was just a way to keep probably paying the security guards, keep the lights on for you know, <laughs> the electricity on for boiling a kettle to make tea or whatever it was they were doing in there. But it was really just, um, yeah, Glenglassa was not looking good uh, through those time periods. So when it got re kind of brought back to life in 2008, uh, we've been building towards this point. So if you do look on our website and social media, you'll see these lovely new packaging, 
the new bottles. And this is really to celebrate Glenglassa as a whole, but also really more importantly, the 12 year age statement, which we've been waiting on and quietly building this stock up for so long now. So that's why we've kind of been under the radar because we've been building this up to this moment. So we know for a fact that, you know, many distillers will say 12 years and they will include 13, 14, 15 year old whiskeys just to give us the consistency. But for Glenglassa, we don't have anything older other than if we go back into the 80s or the 70s or the 60s. So this is all going to be a product of 12-year-old whiskey, almost exclusively. So this guy is aged in bourbon, sherry, and red wine casks being brought together in a marriage. And it really is more sherry forward, certainly more so than the sand that we try. Yeah, definitely, yep. But it's it's incredibly balanced. Like it doesn't, you know, like I don't obviously get that crisp. It's just, it's very smooth. Mm-hmm. Like this it is really this, this one with a piece of this one with a piece of chocolate. Oh yeah, would probably just be like heaven. And, you know, like just melt the chocolate in your mouth, take a sip, and just let let all the magic happen. It's very sophisticated for a twelve year old. For a twelve year, yeah, and that's the thing we overlooked. Uh, we overlooked twelve years sometimes, but I'm always looking for that next armchair whiskey, and I feel like I want it to be this one so badly, but I keep drinking it too fast because I'm just it's so moorish, it's so easy to just pick apart. It's lovely. It really is a lovely sherry forward whiskey. You're still getting that little bit of, again, I'm looking at the back, left, right sides of my tongue there, just picking up that little bit of salinity. And that's a combination in this case, I think of obviously that coastal proximity, all the maturation is taking place on site, but also those red wine casks. Just Rachel's probably using about a teardrop of red wine cask stocks (laughs) in here, but it just... Not a t- not, not a teaspoon, <laughs> maybe a wee teaspoon. Like, yeah. <laughs> I always like, and just a teaspoon in there. <laughs> I know it's uh, I love it. I love what the red wine does here. It gives you that little bit of tannic structure that drives up that that little bit of savoriness. Um, and it's not. I would never and say that's like, why. Like with with like with cheese or chocolate. I mean, just you, the armchair sipper. Like this is it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's lovely stuff. It really is. And uh, we're going to try the last one soon enough, but out of the three that we've released, I think I was like, oh, yeah, the 12, ticking all the boxes, candied pistachio, figs and dates <laughs> and chocolate. Lovely. And then I like, I try Sand End and I'm like, oh, this is something totally different. And it's just offering a very different perspective on what the distillery is. You're kind of stripping away more of these layers of you're not really relying on the cask anymore. You're looking at the distillery profile and you're like, wow, banana. You're looking at mango, papaya, pineapple. It's a totally different whiskey, but it's from the same distillery. And then lastly, we've got Poor Soy, which is our, our peated one, which, again, I, I fell in love with this one as well for totally different reasons. So, but it's not, but it's not, a, it's not like heavily, heavily peated. No, it's, it is. It's funny. On the barley, it's it actually is. It probably is. It probably is. I'm just sniffing right now. So, like, no, 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 but, no but you're right. You're right. Because it is heavily peated, but. Almost like with Benriac, the PPM, I, we, I'm kind of glad we don't really talk about PPM anymore, parts per million or phenolic parts per million. It's a conversation, I think, the more you look into it, you realize that it's not, it's kind of more difficult to just say that's a number and that's why it's so smoky. Because obviously, once you start fermenting and distilling and maturing, you lose so much of these, um, so much of the phenolic value. But this is heavily peated. On the barley, we're looking at about 35 to 40 parts per million. But because it's that highland peat, a very different source of peat, 
you're getting a totally different flavor profile. It's that sweet, gentle smoke. And what's even more interesting, if you go into the history of Glenglassa, going back to the 1880s, we actually know for a fact that the Glenglassa back then was peated because they were importing peat from the local highland peat bogs around the distillery that was coming in by horse and cart. And so back then, like many distilleries were, they were using peat and Glenglassa. It works with the style of spirit because we that's what they used to do back in the days. And so what you get is this luscious, oily, viscous, touch of tropical fruit coming in. You almost get like that mango note now turning into charred mango, barbecue mango, um, coming in with that soft, sweet peat. And it just goes so well together. And it just makes this maritime whiskey come to life. Well, I, I think that's the maritime because like, I think the peat just creeps up the middle of my tongue mm-hmm. and, I, and it just hangs out. Yeah. It's yeah, not like building back, something. Like the side of my yeah, it's not building. The side of my cheeks are like almost like singing, because it's like wow, like I need another sip of that, like that. But on the nose, I would never have actually picked up that this was gonna. I wouldn't say have as much of a peat kick because I think it's very well rounded. Yeah. But it's again beautifully balanced. It is. It's balanced, and it's. I mean, this is still. And this is non-inch statement. So again, forty-nine point one. Forty-nine point one. Yeah. Yeah, we're not playing around here. I mean, there's there's no hiding here. Um, knowing what we know about how much we have to work with stock-wise and age statement-wise, we're probably going to be... And that's the thing as well. If you ever... If you were a fan of Glenglassa before we rebranded this year, you would know that we had non-age statements that were constantly, every time we vatted and bottled, they were starting very young and then they progressively, every time we bottled, they get older and older. And... I've even got some single casks that are like seven or eight or nine years old coming at cask strength and they taste beautifully. I just tried a rum cask the other day that was from Glenglassa that was, I think, nine or eight, I think it was nine years old and coming in at almost, I think it was 59 or 60% ABV, drank far beyond its years. I think that is Glenglassa. It can, it can almost create this illusion that you're drinking something that's much older than it is because it has that oiliness. Um, that just creates a look. I, I, I fell in. I fell in love after obviously the distillers one of one to you know what Glenglasso's capabilities are. I, I ordered an auction that one of the thirty year olds in your oh, yeah. pre new pack pre new packaging, very pump and ceremony bottle, mm-hmm. very different. Mm-hmm. I would imagine <laughs> uh, very very royal. <laughs> it's very. It almost looks it, like it, a cognac ball, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it's a it's a very like it's a showstopper. Doesn't fit yeah. the mold of what you would mm-hmm. normally see. And I'm super intrigued just to keep delving into what comes out of there because I think it's your sleeping giant. <laughs> it is. It really is. And that's the fun thing is that we've you've, you went to Distillers 1 of 1, so you saw what we won't see for a very long time with Glenglassa because, yeah. because of that gap in production from 1986 to 2008. We just, we're, we're sitting on all this old stuff a big gap and now we've got this core release of non-age statement and 12 year old whiskey so um there's we're, sky's the limit here with Glenglassa and it really is like you said the sleeping giant it's it's coming online it's so interesting to see well you and me have crushed the time on here and I have just one more question and you know every guest has a little bit of trouble answering it because we've all led very fortunate lives if you could take a moment in your history with whiskey is there a moment that stands out where you literally look look yourself in the mirror without the mirror and go like holy shit i can't believe i'm doing this or what a moment 
Is there are they is there any like pinnacle moment where you like like mine had been a million great experiences and then there still is one of one. I'm like, oh, this is it. this is like the pinnacle now. I don't think I could break this one. Do you have a moment that clocks out in your mind? And it could be a personal, like, hey, you got to meet someone where you're like, wow, life is good. I think the first I had to go through a, a number of just quick kind of random little snippets of memory there to get to this one, which I think this is definitely the one. Uh, there are so many, but and I, I talked to my friends back in Scotland, and again, some of them are into whiskey, some of them aren't, and they're always just like, "What is that job? What is what are you doing?" <laughs> well, the hey, one, that, yeah, what what is this? But it's I think for me the the one thing that really stands out is I remember being in Glendronic, and I was just starting in the role as brand ambassador, and it was probably back in twenty, it would have been twenty seventeen. I went over to Scotland, went back home, really. But went up north and I remember being in Glendronic. It was the first distillery we went to and out of the three. And we were with Stuart Buchanan, our global brand ambassador. And we were actually with the, someone from Brown Foreman as well. And then my co-part that was in New York and I was in San Francisco. And I remember we were out in the courtyard and we were just kind of going from the distillery itself to one of the warehouses. I think we we're going to the filling station actually to see the cask getting filled. And Glendronic is, again, it hasn't changed since the you know, Victorian era. It's all cobblestones. It's beautiful. And they were rolling out a cask, this big old sherry butt. And Stuart had, you know, we were asking one of the guys, oh, what is this? And Stuart recognized, he's like, this is a 1972 single cask. And we asked the guys, like, could we, or Stuart asked them, can we try this? And so we tapped on the cask, we got a thief and we thiefed it out into some glasses and we had some guys there that were rolling the casts and they've worked there for their entire lives. And uh, in some cases, like they've got their generations of people that have worked there, their family. And we all shared a dram out in the cold surrounding this, this 1972 big old sherry butt. And we're sipping on this 1972 and it was just as dark as molasses. It was like treacle in the glass. And we're, I was just amazing to see, you know, we're talking about that light bulb moment for people when they have that like click, we were like, that's them having that moment where they're like, you know, loving whiskey and see the guys that make it who rarely get to try this stuff go, wow, I can't believe we're rolling this around and that's what it tastes like in there. That for me was like the fir- the moment where I was like, this is such a wild and crazy job. And, and for me, you can go to Vegas and you can go to these really fun events and pull some, you know, amazing, extraordinary events and meet amazing people around the world for this job. But I just love being back. I love being back and meeting the guys that make it and being as close to that that kind of grain of truth as possible with, with where whiskey comes from and getting to talk to them because they're just normal guys making whiskey. And that's where it gets really interesting. Well, that's I tell people. It's, it's just a job. They show up to do the job. I'll have these conversations there where it'll be like, well, what's changed? I mean, we still show up to do our job. <laughs> like, really, you know, yeah, technology's changed. Efficiency's, you know, for sure. But we just show up to do our job and make make whiskey. We don't. They don't even sometimes know how great it is. Like you said, they have no. Hey, we're just pulling pulling this thing around. Like yeah. Oh, whoa, that's really good. And they love it. I mean, I go there, and I've had people go there as well. Other people from all over the world go. But when they when you go down to even like the bottling hall in Edinburgh, and you talk to the people that work there, where they're just you know working as you know whatever role they're in in the bottling hall, so they're actually quite removed from the distillery. And when you come over and you talk to them about how, you know, we had this conversation today on this podcast, or you meet someone that's in Wyoming or in 
San Diego or Florida, wherever it may be. And they're just like, wow. They're like, really? Like people are drinking Glendronic way over there. And you're like, yeah. And they love it. And so they don't quite get that, that maybe that kind of, you know, that telephone call. Um, that exposure. As as that exposure. But well, they so appreciate well, it. Well, I, I can't thank you enough, my man, for taking the time today. That was so awesome. I love, love everything you're doing. Always enjoy my time with you. Hopefully we get to spend some time soon. I feel like it's been way too long. Wait. Are there any social media, any social media you want to plug? You know, uh, or Instagram, yeah. et cetera? Yeah. I don't often do this, but if you're well, if you want to follow me, I take pretty photos of pretty bottles and talk about some of the nerdy sides of uh, single malts. But you can follow me at Drams with Rory, all one word on Instagram. Usually a lot of fair, uh, kind of where I am in the US, what I'm doing, what yeah. I'm drinking, that kind of thing. Well, thank you again, my friend. That was awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Definitely follow Rory. Pick up, you know, a bottle of each of the three expressions. I definitely, they're great. They make great whiskey. They just did. Absolutely. These are great established historical whiskey houses. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you on the next show. And thank you again for supporting this little passion project I'm busy building over here. And that's a wrap.